In a car, you're always in a compartment. And because you're used to it, you don't realize that through that car window, everything you see is just more TV. You're a passive observer, and it is all moving by you boringly in a frame. On a cycle, the frame is gone. You're completely in contact with it all. You're in the scene, not just watching it anymore, and the sense of presence is overwhelming. It says dirtbags in the title, we can do what we want. This is the Enlightened Dirtbags Podcast. My name is Jonah Condro. And I'm version two. In the first season of our podcast, we'll be discussing seven books about motorcycles. We're glad you're here. Let's turn some pages. gonna call it the bendable river instead of inquiry into values but he was like testing out these subtitles on people at parties in his house okay because apparently his wife woke up one morning and was like i had this fucking terrible dream where you named the book a bendable river (laughs) so he was like testing it out on people at parties between that and an inquiry into values and he was like, yeah, people don't seem to like an inquiry into values. And his editor's just like, well, Robert, uh, parties aren't exactly a great place to uh, test out book titles on people. They're not usually very open to ideas in these scenarios. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, maybe try something else. We have two books that we're talking about on the season finale of The Enlightened Dirtbags. Yeah, we got a bit of a double feature today. Zen and the Utter Motorcycle Maintenance, An Inquiry into Values, and then this is by Robert Persig. Then we also have Zen and Now, On the Trail of Robert Persig and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Mark Richardson. There's already enough words in Persig's book, Zen and the Art, and then there's there's this like a whole other book that we decided to read, and we're going to cram this all into one episode. There's, yeah. there's a lot of words here. It would, it's, it's a lot to cover, but I think it's kind of mandatory. I know in my personal experience after reading uh, ZMMM, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, I didn't quite grasp everything about the story and the characters until I had read Zen and Now. I still haven't. This, yeah, this is the third sure. time I've read Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, yeah. and I still haven't. It's kind of like watching Fight Club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To quote Fred Durst, I've seen the Fight Club 28 times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to unpack for sure, and uh, I know a lot of people actually that have read uh, ZMM and been like, "I don't, I don't get it," or like they just don't grasp the point. Or I sometimes I don't even know if there is one. Like it kind of feels like Robert Persick has a habit of getting caught on a topic, you know, like something that he doesn't quite grasp, and it's like a record skipping on an imperfection, and it's like his brain just clicks over and over and over until he can grasp it and in some ways the book kind of feels like a crazy man got stuck on a question and just went on a life quest to try to find the answer and i don't know if he does i've read this book three times first time i was heavily saturated motorcycle riding love the book second time i read it i was in the midst of doing my degree and i don't think i liked it as much and i think i was poking at it with an over overly critical eye third time this time i read it definitely a lot more open uh than i had been say the second time Mm. and i think 
sort of like the observation you're making about like the crazy guy getting stuck, right? Like a record skipping. It almost felt like I was like, man, we're almost there. We're like, we've almost got this figured out. And like, I felt like I wanted a little bit more. Every time he does like a deep dive into something, right? Whatever philosophical thing that he's sort of like poking at, I was like, he just kind of keeps skipping and skipping and skipping and skipping and skipping and skipping. And And I was like, man, we're almost there. And then like the end of the song never comes. Like I kind of, even though it's, a very dense book, philosophically and otherwise, it still left me wanting more, right? Like, I wasn't finished when I was finished reading this book. Kind of like when you've got a sneeze and you reach the point of the, ah, uh, but you don't get the yeah, sneeze, yeah. you know? You're just left empty a little bit. A little bit, a uh, little bit, yeah. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would say empty, but unfulfilled. Some, unfulfilled would yeah. be, there's something more. But, I mean, he did go on to write another book. I think in this episode, I think we're probably going to end up bouncing between the two books, for sure. ZMM and Zena Now. And I think a lot of the work that Mark Richardson did and a lot of the people that he met and sort of meets, he kind of like reaches out and meets a lot of the same characters that Persik meets when he went on this motorcycle trip in the late 60s. A lot of people said too, like they didn't really understand the book when they read it or they didn't even finish it the first time through. It took him a couple times to kind of get through, right? So... Just to kind of like go back to reading two books for one episode, uh, I was sort of not enthusiastic about that approach for this episode because I understood that like this is a that's those are a lot of words to read, right? For sure. But having now reread ZMM and having reread Zenanel, I've, I've read both of these books before. I'm more appreciative of the approach that you recommended, mm. and I think we're better off, and I think listeners of this episode are going to be better off. Because I feel that Zen and Now is sort of like an entire book that's sort of like an epilogue, right, to ZMM. Like, you, you retrace the steps and you're kind of starting from ground, you know, zero again in the whole trip. But, like, it's sort of a nice way to get that sort of completed feeling, right? It gives you a lot of uh, reflection on on the author, you know, Robert Persig himself. Zen and Now really helps you understand him, which helps you understand the book. So... Just just for a baseline here, um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is uh, written by Robert Persig. It is about a father and son who ride from Minnesota to San Francisco via Montana, Idaho, and Oregon, partially accompanied by their friends John and Sylvia Sutherland. It's not exactly a true story. Like, it is written about other characters, but it's it felt a lot like... It's honest enough to be sort of a confession, but not honest enough to be an autobiography, you know? Yeah. Like, because Persig and his son did do that trip, right? And they but, did go with the Sutherlands. For sure. And it's, but there is some, you know, stretching of the truth and kind of create, changing the characters a bit for the sake of the book. But a lot of the questions the characters asking throughout the main story, the narrator, it's all things that Persig has chased down himself, you know, mentally, and has the same uh, personality break, the the electroshock therapy that was done and everything like that. So it is it is really Persig's story, but he just doesn't write it about himself, you know? He takes a lot of sort of like creative sort of license, and he tries to be more literary, right? Trying to tell a story as opposed to just like bonking us over the head with, you know, wrestling with these humongous philosophical questions right 
And I think that's what makes the book work. Because I think if you just sort of, you know, had a series of essays, and I was listening to an interview of him in 1974 um, earlier, and that's essentially how the book started. It was just a series of essays. You wouldn't have gotten, I don't, obviously you wouldn't have had the book we have now, but I think the, the sort of like critical uptake of it and the popularity and it's, you know, achieving like a best-selling sort of status, it like, it needed a narrative to get you there. Right. For sure. And it, it gives you breaks. Like if you were just to like sit down and just read like philosophical critique, philosophical critique, philosophical critique over and over and over again, like you would never finish reading all of that stuff. Right. But then you kind of get the break of like the motorcycle trip and he does it in a way. And I didn't really realize he was doing this, you know, on the first reading because he's, you know, a very talented writer, but he does it in a way that sort of like binds all of this together. That kind of makes sense. Right. You know, he touches on topics here and there. He'll dive into some philosophy here and there dive into his main question, of course, which is what is quality? which is kind of seems to be what he got caught up on. But like you said, he doesn't beat you over the head with it. And he'll ask something and then relate it to, say, motorcycle maintenance or traveling or technology, little small things in life that relate to his main question, which I always thought was really interesting. When he's talking about quality, he talks about quality of parts, quality of craftsmanship, you know? little ways to digest it a little better than just some big philosophical question where a lot of people just go, nah, no thanks. That's a perfectly okay reaction to take to this book. I don't, I don't think that this book is going to be for a large audience. Like, don't get me wrong. It sold a lot of copies. It did very well commercially. And, but I think a lot of the book, let me restart by saying that I think you could read this book and take what you need from it because I think there's going to be enough in there to kind of like get a little bit of interest out of a reader, right? I don't think that this book is going to be consumed in its whole and loved by like a soul reader. Maybe I'm wrong because there's certainly parts of the book that I don't like. There's parts I'm like, oh man, like you're just like almost powering through it, right? Yeah. And then there's parts where you're like, man, like there's just like, he just gives you like a paragraph, a couple sentences and you just like, you feel like you're becoming Buddhist almost, right? <laughs> So let me ask you this. The first time you read Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, did you read it all the way through the first time or did you put it down and come back to it later? I wouldn't say I put it down and came back to it later, but there was like long stretches where I like took sort of like a, a break from it, right? Yeah. Kind of took like a coffee break from it. I didn't take necessarily a vacation from the book per, per se, but you know, so like there might've been like two or three weeks that went by and then I started reading it again, right? Oh, uh, Yeah. Yeah, see, because I was going to say, it seems like a common theme. Most people I know that have read it or that are currently reading it, because I've handed this book out to so many people. I've owned a bunch of copies just so I can be like, hey, read this. But I always want to have my own original copy so I can read it again. I know myself, I took a quite a long break when I started it. I just couldn't quite grasp it. I couldn't dive into it. I took a long break, came back and finished it later, and then ended up going back and reading it whole again. Most of my friends that have read it did the same thing. And the interesting thing I found was Mark Richardson in Zen and Now, that was actually his story. So he had found it and started reading it and then put it down. And, you know, way longer down the road, came back and finished the book and then became so obsessed with it, like even not being able to dive into it fully to start with. Later on, when he finally finished the book, became so obsessed with it that he decided to ride his motorcycle on the exact same path and kind of follow down all these waypoints 
and meet a lot of the same people and have the same experience. If somebody goes to read this book and they're like, ah, I'm not really feeling it, totally understandable. It doesn't mean you're not going to really enjoy the book in the end, but that it kind of seems to be a common theme that people get into it. And that it's, it's just kind of hard to digest at first until it seems like you pick it up again and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm grasping what's happening here now. On my third reading, there's sort of stuff that I thought I understood and maybe I don't necessarily understand it to the full extent that I thought in some of these sort of philosophical questions that he's tackling. And I think there's a lot of new stuff that I pulled out of it, right? And I think even sort of like my first sort of, not so much my first, but maybe the second time I read it, the the hot take I would have had from it is I just thought that this was like a crazy guy that wrote a book, right? Right. And it just so happened that it just, he got lucky. And I think that was sort of like my, uh, maybe sort of being a little bit of a, a cynic, right? Now after reading it again, I think that, you know, sort of having mental anguish and like sort of mental health challenges, right? And then also you see that in his son, Chris, too, right? And I think reading it again, I think it's it's a lot more nuanced than just saying that this is a crazy guy that wrote a book, right? I think there's, I think I didn't give Persig enough respect on my second reading that I have now. And I'm, I'm certainly not done with this book and I'm not done reading Robert Persig because then there's Lila. I haven't even... I don't own a copy of that, but that's definitely, it's on my reading list too, right? I've read it. They said, a lot of people have said it kind of answers a lot of the questions that he asks in the first book. I didn't enjoy it as much. Uh, I don't feel like I got the answers everyone says they found, but I think it's probably because it's based around a sailboat and not a motorcycle. Right. And so I wasn't really there. You yeah. Know? Sailboats are great, but it's not a motorcycle. A lot of these places that Persig has kind of traveled to, and sort of like that northwestern sort of corner of the United States, like I've stopped in a lot of these same towns, right? And so even when I was rereading Zen and L, Mark Richardson, he's talking about these little places. I was like, I'm like, man, I remember that. And like maybe I remember it from like reading it before, but like a lot of these places, like, oh yeah, I like I stopped there. I didn't stop necessarily at the same motel or the same gas station or the same turnout, right? But like a lot of these places I've been to, you know, especially like the Beartooth Pass. Uh, there's like the a, a low, low pass, like all of these places kind of in Montana and Idaho, like I've actually been through, you know, it's likely that the places actually would have changed quite a bit in that time, right? Like this trip happened in 1968. So even when Mark Richardson does his trip, which I don't remember the timeline, I think it's like 2000, I want to say 2004, 2005, because yeah. I think his book was published in around 2008. Yeah. So even when he goes through a lot of the places have changed, you know? So nowadays it's a lot of the buildings won't be there. It's a lot of small towns. The reason for that being that Persig found main highways to be impersonal. He liked the back roads. And I found this actually, it was an interesting point. Um, he talks about having good times and not making good time, you know, the experience of the journey. But Something I found interesting about that was it almost seems like he gets so caught up on having good times and like it almost feels like he has a you'll enjoy this trip or else kind of feeling. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's almost his obsession with experiencing the journey and not just getting to the destination almost drives him too crazy to actually have fun on the journey. Yeah. Because there's like a there's like a moment late in ZMM 
where the Sutherlands, they've already turned around and gone home. And then it's just Persig and his son, Chris, and they go visit like this lake. It's like a, a touristy trap kind of place. Right. And Chris is like, why are we here? And he's just like, he gets mad, you know? And it's, there's, it's like this sort of moment where it's sort of like one of the final conflicts between the two characters. If you want to sort of speak about that in a literary way. And it's kind of after that, that sort of the father and the son sort of like reconcile and whether whether or not that's sort of true to like Persig and his son's like sort of real biography, I'm not really 100 percent sure. But like it's it's kind of like, you know, the rising action, right? They're at this lake and they're supposed to be enjoying, you know, this stop at like this majestic blue natural, you know, protected lake somewhere in the States. I think it's Washington, Oregon or something. And then it's like I think it was Crater Lake. Yeah. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Thank you. You're right. And then. And then they're just kind of like, they leave mad. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, and it's funny, Mark Richardson actually mentions that that's his first big split from the original storyline of the book, is that when he's there, it's a it's beautiful. Yeah. He's like, this is amazing. And he can't yes. stop looking at the lake. For sure. And he's like talking about how his experience at the lake is entirely different from theirs. So it's kind of like, you can trace the steps, but you can't retrace the experience. You know, they had so much more going on in what they were doing. So I read Zen and Now shortly after my second reading of ZMM. And I read Richardson's book. I enjoyed it. And I still enjoyed it the second reading. But I was like, this is kind of cheesy. Like, he's just like, you know, doing like the Persig's Pilgrims is called where they follow all this stuff, right? It's kind of cheesy. But then I got thinking about it. And I'm like, I kind of like what he did because he's trying to understand Persig on his own terms he's not he's not doing literary work he's not doing philosophical work like mark richardson's like a a journalist right and a writer in his own but he's like i'm just gonna like do the same route persig dig and i'm gonna hope that it helps me understand the book and i like i really come to respect doing that even though it sounds cheesy like oh i'm gonna retrace the steps like this is the same way he went and this is where he stopped right and he's following the gps and you're like oh come on richardson like you can do better than this but then I, I kind of came around. I was like, no, I kind of I kind of understand what he's up to here. And I think I appreciate what he did more because I think it really helps sort of elucidate ZMM after reading sort of what Mark Richardson has to has gone and done and traveled and, you know, and what he has to say. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing about uh, Zen and now is he really gives you insight to who Persig is as a person. Yeah. Like and so I think that was kind of the point is of him retracing these steps is to. I don't know, maybe feel closer to Persig to understand him more. He does write to him a few times. I don't think he ever got the chance to meet him. Persig wasn't really one for fame. No, I think he was a bit of a recluse, right? Yeah, for sure. It sounded like he kind of handled the fame a little bit weird. So I think it was kind of diving in. I felt the same way. Like when I first read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, I was like, oh, it would be cool to go do that trip. And then as I got more motorcycle time under my belt, I kind of felt... Like, I don't really want to experience someone else's journey. I want to go do my own. For sure. But reading, like you said, reading Zen and Now, you do kind of grasp, like, he's trying to understand this person. It's not just the story itself of ZMM. It's also understanding Persig. And so much of the information that he gives you, if you read ZMM and don't understand who Persig is, it kind of just sounds like a weird story that doesn't have an ending until you understand that it's really... a a peek into someone's mind of what this mental breakdown they're having. And, uh, which I want to get back to that. We haven't really touched on his uh, mental health issues yet because it plays a big part. But for now, while we're talking about Zen and now, I wanted to ask you, 
do you felt feel like uh, Mark Richardson almost kind of emulated Persig in his writing in a way? The dreams with the eagle watching him, you know, Persig has the wolf and uh, and just the writing style. And I couldn't it felt really familiar. It felt a lot like Persig's writing. And I couldn't decide if that was intentional. You know, ZMM did really, really well. Maybe if you write it the same, kind of the same idea, people will grab onto it easier. Or if maybe it was kind of, you know, unintentional and just came out of his obsession with this book. Because you would have to be, you know, pretty obsessed with ZMM to want to go do this exact same experience. Like, it's a long trip. He mentions that he's away from his family. Him and his wife are kind of having rough times. It's not an ideal time for him to go on this trip. Like, it's quite an undertaking. So in some way, it almost felt to me... Like he was just so obsessed with Persig that he was kind of emulating him in his own way. I definitely picked up on that because sort of like the form of of Zen and Nell, right? How it's sort of like you get like a little blurb from, I shouldn't say a little blurb, but you'll get like, okay, this is like Richardson and what he's seeing and what he's experiencing. And then it's sort of blended with like, oh, I ran into this person. You know, he's talking to like, I think it's like Bill the Mechanic at one point, right? And goes to his hangar and like rides his trike and all this crazy shit like down the runway. And then it kind of like, oh, and then this is what Persig was up to at this stage in the journey, right? So you kind of get like this very sort of like, it's almost like a back and forth, but in your own voice. Like it's, I think it works. And I don't know what Richardson's intention was, if it was accidental or if it was sort of like, made to sort of come across like that but you're right there is a lot of familiarity right when you when you go from zmm to zen and now and even if there's like a little bit of if you put some space in between the two books like you don't necessarily need to start one and the other you're kind of like wait a second and i think that's okay right i don't and you know because there, there's times where you're like mm, no you're just kind of copying and then it's really disingenuous but i i sort of I would I'd probably make the argument that Richardson's kind of being authentic, right? And so I'm kind of okay. And I haven't read any of his other stuff, so I don't really know what his style's like other than what's in this book. Mm. But I certainly think that, I think it's okay what Richardson had done and sort of like how he sort of like put his own book together. Yeah, I didn't really notice it until this time reading through because the first time I had read them so far apart, this time just reading them right like within the same time span, I think it... It makes it feel so fresh that it seems so similar, but and even just the theme of kind of almost being the haunted man. But at the same time, maybe that connection and that relation to what Persig went through was what drove him to write the book. And that's why it came out as such a quality product and helps you understand ZMM so much more. You know, maybe the emulation came before the book, not because of the book. Right. You know, he just has a connection to it. Sure. It's tough to say, like you said, without reading Mark Richardson's other stuff, it's uh, it's tough to tell. But it, it was just something I kind of got caught up on a few times. I will say about both authors, though, whether they're whether Richardson's trying to emulate or poach or whatever's trying to whatever is going on there is that both of these writers, like they take you on a motorcycle trip. Like when you're reading Persig or you're reading Mark Richardson, whether that's sort of together or in separate readings or however you want to go about these two books, like you are on the trip with these riders for sure. And I found that sort of refreshing and kind of startling at some moments, right? Because it almost like, especially Richardson, because I read that one, obviously that's the freshest one 
that I read here, it's like his imagery is so powerful that you like you you get a sense of what he's looking at, right? Whether it's the grass or the mountains or the trees, the Douglasers, whatever he's talking about, right? You know, the uh, early in the book, you know, there's the the dead eagle on the on the highway, and it kind of turns into like this motif throughout the the rest of Richardson's book, right? So yeah. it's uh. It's not so much this like, oh, I went here and I did this. Like, it's like, man, he went here and he did that. And I think there's there's definitely a difference between between the two kinds of reading, right, and writing. Yeah, and he does a good job of not just making it about Persig. Yeah. Like, he does a deep dive about Persig, but he has his own story that he's telling as well. And his, you know, relating back to previous motorcycle trips. Like, that for me was a big part, you know, as a motorcycle rider myself. If this would have been a guy that really likes Persig's book, and decided to get a motorcycle and do this trip, I don't think I would have connected with it as much. But when he's going through like a hard leg of the trip and he's remembering back to other rough experiences he's had on motorcycles and that, you know, that common theme of reflecting on a long ride, like I do that all the time. When I'm just by myself out on the trip and you just, your memory just goes back to all these moments that you've had. And it felt, it felt like an authentic motorcyclist's book. Yes. You know, not just a guy that decided to get a bike for this experience. That's right. I wanted to go back. We've touched on it a few times. I feel like it's a pretty crucial part of the book. Persig's mental health battles. There's like a moment and and Persig is uh, talking to the Sutherlands about his son, Chris, like his, his son, Chris is having like a little bit of a, let's just call it an episode and he's off in the trees pouting or doing whatever he's doing. And he's talking to the Sutherlands and he says to them, was like, it's not like a stomach issue. They're like he's got like a knot in his. Chris has a knot in his stomach, and anyways, he's like wandering in the trees. And Persig says like it's a mental illness. And there's something about that phrase coming from a guy in like the late '60s. Like that sort of language isn't wasn't as prevalent back then as it is now. And there's a certain weight that that phrase sort of holds in the narrator and Persig's sort of voice in this book, right? And I think it really sort of serves as uh, like a real sharp sort of reminder that this isn't just like, this is a guy like working through his shit and he just happens to be working through his shit while he's riding a motorcycle with his son. Right. Yeah, for sure. So Persig himself struggled with schizophrenia and, uh, was treated with electroshock therapy or something, right? Like some kind of barbaric treatment and, uh, kind of gave him a bit of a, I like a personality break almost like a different character. So, it's kind of him seeing his son showing the same symptoms, I guess, right? So it's like, but he he never really approaches it directly with his kid, with Chris. Like, it's kind of, a, he toughs it out almost and lets him do it on his own. It's kind of like a tough love. Yeah. That might be a little bit reductionist, but that's sort of the sense that you get, right? For sure. Well, and uh, Mark Richardson mentions in Zen and Now that Persick didn't want doctors to treat his son. That's right. I don't yeah. know if that has something to do with how his treatment went, because I believe his was court-ordered. Yeah. So it's pro it's, it's like not, you have to be here. Yeah, it's not exactly <laughs> a uh you know, I went in and got help and I'm better. It was kind of somebody made me. So I could understand, you know, the way he looks at it and it would be tough watching your son go through something that you've gone through and just hoping it maybe it doesn't go to the same extent, you know, hoping that he can still have a future without kind of all of these crazy breakdowns that uh Persig's going through. There's this moment, I remember like sort of arguing with my father, because my father's a big fan of ZMM, as am I. And there's like this moment where Persig sort of recounting how he was just like letting the cigarettes like burn right down to his fingers, like they're burning his fingers. He's just like sitting in a room on the floor, just like pissing, all, like just pissing his pants, like 
basically at the point he's like almost like catatonic right you know like and then that's the moment when like nancy his wife sort of gets the authorities involved right but then my father kind of makes the argument like oh that's just him like reaching zen enlightenment and i can definitely see how you can sort of like look at the situation and like maybe he he was on the path to the sort of like the zen enlightenment right and i don't know what necessarily that takes mentally or physically to kind of even if you sort of subscribe to that sort of belief set or spirituality set, right? I don't know what it takes to get there, but that's sort of like the view and sort of like the interpretation that that my own father takes of that sort of situation where it's like, nah, man, he wasn't crazy. He was just fucking Buddhist as fuck. And then they just called him crazy for it. <laughs> he, I mean, insanity and genius uh, walk a pretty close path, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. So did he believe that the old Persig or the new Persig after the treatment was close to zen enlightenment i don't know i just think that that was sort of like the zen enlightenment moment right, right? that right. wasn't necessarily like a crisis moment where okay we need to get the th authorities involved and like take them away to a psychiatric hospital it's like even though that that did happen right to persig i think it's sort of looked at as man they were like sort of interrupting something right and i, and I think too like that's i think that's sort of like a better way like it, once you, if you look, if you read the book and you're thinking about the book in sort of like more of that Zen enlightenment way, I guess you could say you kind of finish the book. I think you're left a little bit more happy, but if you sort of think of it as sort of like this guy that has schizophrenia, had electrical shock therapy in and out, like problems with the authorities. Right. And Richardson sort of really digs a lot of that sort of history up. Right. And I think if you kind of take that approach and that's sort of what you think the book is about, it kind of bums you out a little bit. Right. The way I kind of looked at it is it's like we had said before with the almost sneezing and not quite sneezing yeah. moment. That alone, obviously, a pretty minor scenario. But it's it's a letdown in a way. You're like, oh, I almost had that sneeze and I didn't. Well, scale that up a million times larger. It's kind of Persig's life. You know, he talks about how he was at, uh, at work one day as a professor and one of the other professors comes by and goes, are you doing quality work today? And then, oh, yeah. Are you teaching your students quality? Yeah, are you teaching your students quality? And then basically his whole life falls apart <laughs> because he's like, wait, what is quality? Yeah. And he like changes his teaching styles. He like tries teaching without grades at all and like and just kind of tumbles down this mountain in search of what is quality. Like it's it's kind of the main underlying point of the book. And like, could you imagine someone that's had you know, these mental health issues and you get caught up on what is quality and you're on this motorcycle quest of sorts and you're just kind of almost having slips between personalities and just fighting your own mental health and trying to find the answer of what is quality. So for us, we read the book and we go, I don't really feel like we got the answer we wanted at the end. But Persig's whole existence like maybe why he wrote it that way is kind of like this is how I feel like I went on this whole quest and like people have thought I'm crazy and I did electroshock therapy and I'm just trying to get an answer and it's not quite there yeah and I think he uses the word Chautauqua quite a bit in like yeah. the beginning of, and that's sort of like I can't quite remember what a Chautauqua actually was but it's sort of like a traveling sort of like science and like teaching show where they would like travel around and like teach you about stuff and he was kind of using the term Chautauqua to kind of describe like working through these sort of phil philosophical questions while riding a motorcycle right 
Yeah, I definitely had to Google that one myself. Yeah, <laughs> Chautauqua. It's there's there's a lot of like phrases, and I've got a lot of them written down. I'm like, ooh, yeah, I got to go back and because he's because he's like educated. He's definitely an intellectual. He's got a different modality of thought just through having undergone electroshock therapy and sort of like what it means to be institutionalized, right? Like it, it definitely, I think there's sort of a before and after, right? Keep in mind, like he went to like, you know, India to study like oriental philosophy, right? Went to the East, right? Uh, I think he was applying for like a PhD at one point, was like teaching at one university, but then doing his PhD at like the University of Chicago and like button heads with like the head of the philosophy department. So like, it's not like he was just some schmo that just happened to write really well. Like this is like an educated individual who's like working through this stuff, right? He was an actual genius, like based on IQ rating. That's was right. Like, yeah. He's a literal genius. Like yeah. one of those people you hear about that's so intelligent that it's kind of troubling them yeah. and they can't really click with the world. That's like, it's that and he's a schizophrenic. Yeah. Like it's got to be basically like a lifetime LSD trip. Like, oh, you know, man. like your whole world is just questions and the search for more and people constantly calling you crazy. Like you could almost make a psychological thriller out of it. Yeah, for sure. Right. Like, so the interesting thing was he mentions he, he calls his other personality, I guess, the previous him before the electroshock therapy. He kind of gives it the name Phaedrus. Yeah, Phaedrus. And. It's interesting because he gives it a wolf likeness. You know, he kind of talks about it as if it's a wolf or looks like a wolf, kind of gives it that wolf feeling. Because I think that was sort of like the Greek translation, right? I think Phaedrus came out of like uh, like Plato or something like that, like the those sort of dialogues. He was like a character. Yeah, like, I think Plato wrote like a book or poem called Phaedrus. Yeah. But the thing I was thinking about is just with him relating this, what he kind of perceives as an evil character inside himself that's trying to kind of break free he relates it to a wolf i read another book not too long ago i think it was written in like i don't know 1932 or it's a long time ago i probably have that way off but it's by herman hess oh yeah it's i read called that book steppenwolf yeah steppenwolf yeah so the whole story is about a guy who feels like he you lent a... me the book yeah exactly <laughs> so he uh and my buddy eric lent it to me shout out to eric it's a great book I still have it in the center console of my truck. I just like, I, there's something about being close to it. I look at it and I'm like, mm, it's a good book. But so the whole story is about a character who kind of has a personality break and he's fighting this character inside him that he literally names Steppenwolf, a wolf of the steps, you know? And it feels like this wolf is trying to break free and shed its human form and like just break away from societal norms, which is kind of what happens with Persig, right? Like Phaedrus inside him is kind of the, quote-unquote crazy one that's asking all the questions and after the electroshock therapy he's supposed to fit into society a little bit more and be a little bit normal per se and i was kind of thinking like what if this is where the ideal lycanthropy came from like werewolves is just a bad understanding like i didn't i wanted to look into it more before the podcast but i didn't have time like what if there's a a history of wolf imagery in schizophrenia and that's kind of where all, the whole idea of werewolves came from is it's a bit of a tangent here, but just people having a mental break and believing that there's this wolf inside of them trying to come out. I just thought it was a common, it was cool to see that common theme between two characters dealing with something similar and both relating it to a wolf. I think what's really interesting. So Phaedrus was actually like, I think Persig, 
I don't know if he intentionally or unintentionally sort of misinterpreted, but it actually means like brilliant or like luminescence or something like that. Like radiant or something. Radiant, yeah. Yeah. So he like gets the Greek interpretation wrong. So which is sort of like ironic, right? At least uh, he puts it in the start of the book. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, just sort of the the image of the imagery of a wolf and you you kind of have like this alpha predator that just sort of kind of does what they need to do to survive, right? And I, there's sort of like this aggressive sort of imagery that comes to that, but sort of like the, you know, you can sort of stand alone and be by your be by yourself and sort of ha- sort of be able to navigate your nature, your environment, whatever that is, just from what you are, right? And I think that sort of sort of comes across in in ZMM, right? Like even though he's sort of traveling with his son and he's with other people and he's but there's there's certainly a, like this very like individualistic sort of feel and you kind of get reminded that Chris is like sitting behind him on this motorcycle, right? Like you can kind of, you kind of forget that Chris is along for the ride. Right. So I think, I think that's something like that. I'm, I'm going to kind of keep my, my eyes and ears open for is like sort of more wolf imagery and sort of how that relates to sort of like schizophrenic sort of people. Right. For sure. Well, and I thought it was interesting that Persig kind of looks at Phaedrus as evil right? As like this bad side of himself that's caged in there. Um, but you get the feeling through the story that that's that Phaedrus is the father that Chris knows and loves. That's right. And kind of remembers, rather than this new new character, the narrator himself almost feels like a stranger. And you get this feeling that like, like you said, you forget that Chris is on the trip, but it almost seems like they're not on the trip. Like they're traveling the same path, but it doesn't feel like they're on the trip together. Chris almost feels very alone and missing this former version of his father, which is, it contrasts the narrator himself so much because he's trying to suppress that. And there's a moment where he talks about, he feels like Phaedrus almost reaches out to Chris in a way, like not a physical or verbal way, but in some spiritual sense, like he's able to reach out and he can see Chris almost tell that that person is still there. So that's, so there's uh in ZMM, there's a moment where uh, Persig is like retelling this, this uh, Goethe poem. It's like Goethe's name is like spelt like G O E T H E, but it's like pronounced Goethe or something like that. And it's uh. And I don't even think he names the poem by its name, but he references Goethe, and then like Richardson sort of talks about it. It's like uh, I think it loosely tra- this poem in particular is like the Earl King, and it kind of translates like the Elf King, and it's sort of this father who's clutching, who's riding a horse through the forest, right? This is sort of like my synopsis of the fucking Earl Elf King poem, right? Father's got his is clutching his son, is riding this horse through like this through this. Uh, forest and the sun sees like this spirit or this phantom that's like trying to like take him away from his father right and this phantom the spirit is like promising his daughters to the sun and and anyways at the, the spoiler alert at the end of this poem like find the father gets home and finds out that you know his son has died and so this is sort of like uh sort of used to sort of describe the relationship between phaedrus and the narrator and chris right is like you know, early in the book, like Phaedrus is sort of like the evil spirit trying to pull Chris away from the narrator, but it's sort of like, and Richardson really sort of gets into this. It's like, it's kind of the other way around. It's like the narrator is actually the evil spirit, right? In Goethe's poem, trying to pull 
this you know the son away from 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 Phaedrus, right? Right, and it goes back to his like dictatorial take on having good times of the trip. It almost feels like he's trying to make Chris love him. Like we're gonna do this father son trip, and you're going to enjoy it, and we're gonna you know have good times. Rather and we're gonna than take make the back times. roads. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you know this is going to be a fun father-son thing. And it feels like a desperate grasp at a father-son experience when really that's not the father that Chris has the connection to. I wonder how much of this is artistic creativity and how much of it is actually what happened between uh, Chris and Persig. And if it really is how their connection was, I wonder if he noticed it at the time or if it wasn't until reflection in writing the book that he really started to make those connections. You know... I get the sense that Phaedrus is kind of kind of written up a little bit. You know, it's kinda I'm just gonna kinda really lean into this this sort of before and after the electroshock therapy, right? And I think I think he sort of uses that sort of creatively to sort of like really drive home the separation, right? Or the space that he sort of senses between himself and his son. So I don't know, necessarily know if like that's true to real life. If there was like such a a huge split between the, let's just call them the before and the after the electroshock electroshock therapy, but they're probably, and I think Richardson kind of gets into it a little bit. Like he did sort of lose some short term memories, but a lot of the you know the long term memories like you know Robert Persig did sort of maintain right. But I think there was definitely a change, and whether that change came from the electroshock therapy or just like just changing yourself just through, you know, sort of self-action, right? But I kind of like that there's this character Phaedrus and, you know, it's, it's such a weird spelling and a weird sort of name that you kind of get like this image of the Phantom, right? Like the PH sort of, you know, the Phaedrus Phantom, mm. right? So I think it's definitely Persig like using his sort of literary proudness to sort of like really engage his audience by sort of like really working up this character, right? Yeah, kind of just a personification of bad feelings. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, though, like if you're almost running from that history, why would you go on a road trip through all of these places that you had been to when you were that person? You know, like they go to one of the old schools. Oh, yeah, because they're like, back they, in Bozeman, Montana. Yeah, and they meet, like, some old friends, and, like, it, it's kind of weird that... The Deweeses, right? Yeah, they go spend some time with the, De- the sure, Deweeses. Who the... know his history. Yeah. And it's it's funny the way everyone that knew him before almost tries intentionally not to use the word crazy in any sense, yeah. you know? It's, like, a weird, like, and one person does say it, and there's this, like, tension, like, oh, no, like, <laughs> don't, don't poke the bear, yeah. you know? Who knows what's going to come out of that box? I saw a common theme here, actually, with uh, the Motorcycle Diaries. So Mark Richardson talks to one of the friends that was on the trip with them, right? And he says that at the time, he didn't think anything of the trip. It was just a trip. Oh, know? like John Sutherland. John Sutherland. Yeah. He didn't think they're anything just, of it. They're just getting away just from on a trip. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't feel like this moment that's going to accumulate into, you know, snowball into this gigantic book or this change in character, like skyrocket Robert Persig to new levels. And it, it felt a lot like how we were talking about Alberto in the book. 
uh, in Motorcycle Diaries, kind of just on an experience with his friends, the friend not realizing what it's turning into. That's right. And whether or not, I wonder whether or not Persig himself, even at the time, was like, "This is I'm going to make this a book, if that was part of the intention, or if he was just living it and later on thought about reflecting. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Motorcycle Diaries, because Persig actually alludes to Che Guevara, because there's a moment in the book where he's sort of describing his appearance and what the sort of like motel staff would have thought of him. And he, he's like, they must've thought I was a Cuban revolutionary. Right. And keep in mind, like Persig definitely read and like, there's no question in my mind that he was probably well aware of the motorcycle diaries. Right. So I was just like, I remember that point. I'm like, ah, ah, yeah. Right. So, you know, it's funny. You would think, I don't know if your version has it, but there's a list of books in the back that inspired the writing of the MMM. Oh, I think I might have that on my other copy, actually. You would think the Motorcycle Diaries would be in there. It's not. Oh. But Bram Stoker's Dracula is. Really? <laughs> I, oh. I wonder if that has something to do with the kind of the evil imagery and the darker side of the story. But because there was a couple in there that I was like, oh, yeah, philosophical and whatnot. And uh, but that one just really stood out. I was like, I don't I don't get the connection there. Bram Stoker's Dracula is a fantastic novel and definitely that's sort of a book that you can sort of like start in like mid-October and if you finish that one around Halloween like you're doing good but uh, Van Helsing like I think he calls himself like a, a metaphysician like that's one of his sort of like job titles right and he's sort of like the philosopher for the crew right and like when you're reading that book you sort of like you know that Dracula is a vampire, right? But none of the characters is sort of like this sort of dramatic irony. It was like, you know, he's a vampire, but none of the characters really understand what, what it means for someone to be a vampire, right? So yeah, like, in their world, they don't have this mythology yeah. of vampires. So like Van Helsing is very much, he's the philosopher. And like, I can definitely see where Persig might have pulled some influence, right? Just like working through sort of a question in a way that's sort of wrapped up in like a literary plot line too, right? So... I just, I really enjoy reading authors and how their characters sort of tackle these, like, not like, oh, how do we get out of this locked room? Not those sort of problems, but sort of like larger problems around, you know, sort of like the morals and ethics, like whether you're dealing with vampires or like a schizophrenic, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I guess in some way you could see some sort of schizophrenia in the Dracula character. Sure. Absolutely. You know, maybe not direct personality but between a between being a person and a bat you know yeah. <laughs> there is very how he presents himself as this wealthy castle owner and then the true monster inside that's you know? right i was gonna ask you what do you think persig what persig's opinion would be of newer fuel injected motorcycles because there's this recurring theme where he kind of drives home the point that maintenance and tuning of your motorcycle is so key to your connection to the machine to the point that he actually almost has a fight with John Sutherland because John rides a big BMW and doesn't really maintain it. He leaves it to the shops and just doesn't really want part of any of that. And he can't grasp that. It goes back to another thing that his brain is skipping on. And he just asks him about it and is so persistent about why would you not want to tune and work on your own motorcycle to the point that John is kind of like, hey, can you can we move on from this? Yeah. Like, Why is this? It's like bugging him. Right. right? So like carburetor tuning it's such a huge part of riding a bike back then. Like, keep in mind, the first fuel-injected bike uh, was the 1980 Kawasaki Z1000G, which would have come out six years after this book. So fuel-injected bikes weren't a thing yet. Do you think 
that he would appreciate the convenience or would he be like the grumpy old man on the porch ah, kids these days, you know, like losing that personal connection to the machine and the maintenance. So if you would have asked me this question immediately after the second reading of ZMM, right, I would have been like, cause I, I kind of took like the, 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 the sort of purest approach to riding a motorcycle. Right. And what that sort of meant was, is like, I didn't really believe in like wearing a full face helmet or having a windshield I didn't really like seeing bags attached to bikes, right? I can relate. I sort of changed my tune a little bit. And then like, oh, now I've got like a saddlebag on one side, but it's sort of small and discreet, right? And I kind of, you know, and then all of a sudden I was okay with taking my bike to the shop. So I think depending on when you would ask me, I think now, I think you're right. I think Persig would probably be like, you know, a bit of a, I think he probably would be a purist, probably right to the bitter end, right? Where, no, I want to set my own valves and change my own oil, right? But keeping that in mind, like now that there's sort of like new problems that are sort of introduced with like modern motorcycles, whether they're, you know, with fuel injection and uh, variable valve timing or variable cam timing and sort of like emission control, you sort of have new problems. And instead of being sort of like, you know, having to diagnose them with feeler gauges or vacuum gauges and that sort of thing or tuning carbs just by the sound and, you know, turning small screws, you kind of need to know how to diagnose like electrical circuits, right? And how to how to be able to read electrical diagrams. And I still think that there is an aspect of motorcycle maintenance that you can still do yourself and sort of still appreciate and approach with, you know, to use Persig sort of term quality, right? Uh, you can still do that with like a multimeter and even a scan tool, right? It's just, you're just doing different things. But then I think that, I think for me is... Bikes are just getting better, and they're getting better every iteration, right? Better fuel economy, uh, more power. You can pack more in a smaller engine. They're more reliable. And so there is something about, and I remember uh, in a short history of the motorcycle, Richard Hammond was talking about guys just like sitting on the side of the road waiting for motorcycles to break down. And like Because the early- you knew if you had a long enough you know space on the road it wasn't going to make it there yeah exactly like you're always and so i think like there's certainly a lot of joy and sort of pleasure you can get out of fixing right and it feels don't get me wrong when something doesn't run and then you get it to run right whether that's a circuit or an engine or whatever you're working on it feels good man when you hit when you turn the key hit the ignition and that motorcycle fires up or that engine fires up like that's like one of the best feelings in the world that you fucking figured it out. Yeah. But on the flip side, when you're going over places like the Beartooth Pass, and even Richardson gets into it because his like rear tire is wearing out, and then his shock starts leaking, and he's like, "Man, am I even going to make it to San Francisco?" Right? And then at one point, he's actually got a flat tire. It's like all of a sudden being able, and he's like, "Oh man, why don't I have tire irons and a spare tire? I could have done this all myself, and then you know fix it up." Right? He's sort of like being hard on himself. But I think there's something about. And he's kind of not really in his environment at that moment because he's worried and he's stressed out. Richardson is about getting his motorcycle fixed. And so I think there is something that sort of takes you away. And then it's kind of nice just to be be that character, to be in the scene. And that's something that Persig talks about. Like in the early pages, he's like, you're you're kind of in the scene, right? Whereas like if you're behind a windshield, you're kind of watching the scene go by. But when you're on a motorcycle, you're sort of a part of it, right? So... Persig's like, I think he passed away in 2017 or something like that, or 2018. Gun to his head, like, would you rather work on it or would you rather ride it? I was like, I think Persig would probably pick ride it. You know yeah. what I mean? 
Yeah, I think you would grumble about the newer bikes, but it, in the end, you know, the convenience is nice. You know, carbureted bikes, if you're going over a pass, like doing the Beartooth, you're going to have to adjust your jets. Yeah. You know, the fuel mixture is not going to be right at elevation. It's it's a lot, and I could understand it probably relates back a lot more to riding a horse than motorcycles do now. Like nowadays, my bike's got electronically controlled suspension, four riding modes, you know, depending what conditions I'm in, how fast I want to go, if I want to ride on dirt, ABS, traction control, you know, heated grips and a GPS. Like it's pretty much a spaceship compared to, <laughs> you know, compared to Persig CB. So, but, and, and I've had project bikes, you know, I got a, I got a 78 Yamaha that I've done a ton of work to put a turbo on it. And it's just a scientific death trap. And <laughs> I've definitely felt that feeling of like something that, you know, like I said, as a science experiment, you don't know if it's possible to make it work. You get it there and that engine fires up and you're like, yes, it's such an amazing feeling. Of course, it comes with many nights of just wanting to beat your head against the wall because there's something just not quite working. But it's just such a great feeling. That's like when Dr. Frankenstein like resurrects the monster, right? Creates the <laughs> yeah. monster. It's alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about Jim Carrey and Ace Ventura. Yeah. It's alive. Um <laughs> Yeah, but at the same time, it's so nice, like being able to hop on. And I got, I felt a little personally attacked in ZMM when he's talking about the um, the Sutherlands riding their big BMWs and just like the <laughs> disconnect. And I'm like, man, I got one of those. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I, at the same time, I would love to have the CB77 that that uh, Persig rides. Oh, and, that'd be cool, right? His bike actually, I've, I have a Kijiji notification set for exactly that bike in case <laughs> one ever comes up. But they're so hard to find. And his bike, actually, the one that he rode specifically, is in the Smithsonian now. Oh, Which right. I would love to go see. Wow. I think now my attitude is, even though I don't own a motorcycle now, and there is sort of, like, I'm going to sort of tell, like, somewhat of a personal story. is like, you know, I was kind of a bit of a purist. I know my old man definitely was, like, whatever that was, times, like, 100, right? And he really talked shit about owning Harley Davidsons and, you know, the whole dentists and lawyers and, you know, that whole, you know, that whole ownership group. And I definitely like, I don't really care anymore. If you want to, if that's what you want to ride and that's what you want to do, I'm cool. If you want to ride the CB, if you want to ride the BMW, I'm like, hey man, that's cool. Like the other day I saw a guy burning around a pedal bike that had like a little uh, two stroke engine, like retrofitted to it. I'm like, Hey, that's cool too. Right. Like I'm into whatever you want to, whatever, whatever you want to ride. But so there was a sort of this moment where my father like moves to Vancouver and he's got like this six speed, like street glide. And it just doesn't make any sense for getting around Vancouver. Like he's like, never gets out of first gear. Right. The bike's overheating. It just like, you know, it just doesn't. So he like sells it and he downgrades and he, I think I can't even remember what he bought, but he bought like a, like a, a dual sport sort of thing, smaller, definitely a different riding style, right? And it was sort of like a little bit sheepish, sheepish about it, but like, man, if you're more comfortable, like, yeah. And if that's the kind of riding you want to do, absolutely get that. Like, there's nothing, there are people that say, it's like, oh, this is what you need to ride and this is how you need to do it. And I used to be one of those people, but like, man, like if that's, if that's what you want to do, Right. And like, even look at your own personal riding history, right? Like one point you were riding like the Vegas eight ball, if I'm uh, not mistaken. Yeah. The high ball. Yeah. Or the high ball. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can relate to that a lot, actually, in a couple points. First off, when I bought that high ball, I had tried some Harleys because, you know, 
being a young guy, you got some tattoos, you want to wear the, you know, the skull cap helmet and the bandana and, you know, the leather vest or denim vest and rip around and feel real cool. Well, kind of the epitome of that is the Harley Davidson. Sure. That's what people go for, you know, leaking oil all over the driveway and all that, <laughs> you know. Um, and I, I wanted one. I remember thinking, like, that's what I need to get. And I just, I tried them and I couldn't bring myself to get one. I just didn't enjoy riding them that much. I didn't find the look of them that nice. There's a few. Basically anything pre-mid-70s, I love from Harley-Davidson. Oh, for sure. Anything after that, I was kind of like, you know, if I had the opportunity to buy a panhead, I'm sure it'd be a mechanical nightmare to maintain, <laughs> but it's a beautiful machine, right? But I just couldn't, so I ended up going with the Victory. I did love that bike. It was super reliable. I beat the hell out of it, did a lot of cool trips on it, but there was still always that, like, you know, it's not a Harley, and you get that moment where you, like, pull up at the gas station, people are like, nice Harley, man, and you're like... You don't want to tell them it's not, you know? <laughs> and then even further on, I was doing a lot of long trips and just got tired of looking at gravel roads in like Montana that I couldn't go ride up and explore. And so I ended up moving to the BMW adventure bike. And again, I was like full face helmet, heated <laughs> dude. I talked so much shit about people with heated grips oh, for so the longest I. time. So I, and then I got them and I'm like, man, I should have done this from day one. It's the greatest thing ever. <laughs> the amount of times it's been riding in the cold and I'm like, oh my God, this is awesome. That's I sort of like how Richardson sort of takes sort of the, the purest approach because he has like, uh, I can't remember the kind of motorcycle, but he calls it Jackie Jackie, new. Jackie knew because right. he had Jackie Blue before. Yeah, yeah it's a right. Suzuki DR600. It's like a fucking dirt bike. And there's a picture of him in like the back. And you're like, he just looks like this huge human on like this small dirt bike. You're like, what is this guy doing? Yeah. Right. And so I kind of like it where he's like, he could have rented a bike, bought a bike, and shit would have went so much smoother. Right. But like for me, I kind of like that he's this riding this like kind of dirty old you know, dirt bike that he's had for a bazillion years. And then, uh, you know, one part of the book, like we're in the shocks leaking and his clutch is kind of slipping. He gets his neighbor to like take those same parts out of like Jackie Blue or whatever. Yeah, off his wrecked bike from uh, the garage. Yeah, and like sends it to him to the hotel in San Francisco. Like, don't get me wrong. When you run into a problem on the side of the road, it's like, this is fucked. You're mad, Right. And like I've been there, and you're just like I am not like in life. When you get a flat tire, it's the worst on a motorcycle. You're like, fuck, I just want to ride, right? Yeah. So, but I kind of, you know, I just kind of like grin when I'm reading that because I like I understand like after the fact when he's like got the bike fixed up and or whatever, right? And Richardson's like back home, you know. Then you kind of look back on those sort of events sort of more fondly. And I think that's sort of what Persig understands. He knows that by going the back roads, by staying off the interstates, by staying away from the tourist traps and like sort of really getting out there that, yeah, it might not be ideal. And you, there's like moments when they're camping, like just in the ditch off a logging road, right? Like that's not comfortable, you know, at all. They're cold, they get wet, you know, and they're just like trying to figure it out. But like after you get out of that, you're like, okay, like you can kind of speak of those experiences in like a higher regard because you have something to talk about, right? And that's not to say that the Sutherlands don't. They're just, they just don't necessarily, they're trying, whether whether or not they're trying to avoid those sort of situations that sort of put them in like this frustrating situation. I mean, I get it. Like sometimes the trip is just about having a glass of whiskey at the end of the day, you know? For sure. Yeah, a comfy bed in a hotel. Yeah. Not packing up and unpacking a tent in the rain. Oh, man. But it's, it's like you said, man, when you look back, like, some of my best memories are of times when I was like kind of miserable, you know, <laughs> like doing 
1500 kilometers back in a day with my license plate stolen off my bike coming home from South Dakota, like in the rain and like nine degrees, like it didn't hit 10 degrees all day in the rain, 1500 kilometers. And I was just like, why the fuck do I ride motorcycles? You know, <laughs> sure. And you'd come over a hill and you're like, of course you have to go down through a valley, pouring rain, come up over the hill, hoping to see blue skies. It's more rain. And you're just like, Oh, but like I woke up the next day and was just laughing. Like I look back and I'm like, it's so funny. Like we hit me and my buddy Mo hit hail on the going to the sun road, you know, the mountain pass through Montana trying to set up our tents. Like it's just hailing. And you're like, at the time you're like, man, this is brutal. And then, the sun cleared up, and on that particular trip, we ran into a big family that's from all over the states, and they get together once a year for a big family camp out in Montana, and we had a blast. Like, we hung out with their whole family. They made blueberry cobbler or something like that in this, like, little pot over the fire, and they had all these crazy beers. Like, if we wouldn't have, you know, if we would have just taken the easy way, taken the long way around the mountain that's smooth highway, you know, you're not going to get any sporadic weather up top. We wouldn't have ridden through that hail. When we got there, like, we could have got to West Glacier, and we stopped, and we're just, like, standing there under a tree, and it's just hailing. <laughs> but it's, like, hail and rain. So it's not just hail, but you're also wet, you know? And we could have just been like, oh, we'll go get a hotel. But we decided we are going to find a camp spot, set up our camp, and we had a great night because of it. And I think that's sort of the conflict in Mark Richardson's book, because he's got everything that he needs to camp, right? And he kind of forces himself to go do it, because he's like... And he's always talking about, like, the prices of hotel rooms. And I get it. He's on a budget, right? And I think it's kind of helpful to sort of understand what a trip like that sort of takes, you know, cost-wise, right? Because I, you certainly don't want to jump into something that, you know, forces you to run out of money, right? So I don't... It, at times it sort of seems like it's a bit of a, like a travel diary or a travel blog. Like, oh, this hotel was four stars and it cost me $55 American for, for a night. So, but yeah. I think it's sort of kind of helpful that he, 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 and you see that conflict because I think Mark Richardson definitely understands like the sort of like the authentic motorcycle trip. Then there's like the more authentic motorcycle trip. And it, he was definitely trying to sort of lean towards the more authentic, right? Yeah. Not get a hotel on nights that they had camped out. Yeah, you know, exactly. To try to right. Really get into it. And sometimes you really are making yourself do it, especially man, like. The difference would have been, too, that there's probably way more hotels now when Richardson's going through. Oh, yeah. Like, it's a pretty traveled road. It's, you know, like you said, Persick's Pilgrims. It's a pretty common thing. Most of the places <laughs> that he went, they're like, oh, we get one of you from time to time. Yeah. You know, you're following yeah. that crazy book. And it was funny. A bunch of the people that he met had the same thing. Like, oh, I've read that book. Oh, it took me four years, you know. <laughs> or like, yeah, I'm just starting to read it again now. Or, oh, I should pick that book up again, you know. When it's just convenience available everywhere, it can be pretty hard, especially when your options are, you know, set up camp in a on the edge of town campground that doesn't really feel like camping. Yeah. It's like a tent hotel. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but whereas with Persig, a lot of the time it was just on, the, like you said, in a ditch on the side of the road or on <laughs> oh, some man. gravel road, like Chris is wandering up the hills on old logging roads and stuff. It's a totally different experience, but you can't get that the same without going back in time. Right. Yeah, and, you know, I think to the trip I did with a gentleman from Australia when we went to Sturgis, and we, like, really took the long way to get there. Like, you know, we could have left from Alberta and been been in Sturgis in, like, four days, but it took us, like, three weeks or something crazy to get there. Anyways, he didn't want to camp because I was like, hey, are we, like, am I bringing my tent sleeping bag? He's like, we're not camping, man. Like, And part of it was 
he's like, if we have to, I'll just go buy a cheap tent and I'll just like pack it up and I'll just give it to whoever's running the campsite at the end of it. Right. But yeah. like he was kind of not so much needed the needed the comfort per se, but it wasn't necessarily the trip one he wanted to do. He was more about, I want to put on the miles. I want to get the bike there. And I just, I don't want to worry about setting up a tent at the end of the night. And I was like, okay, it was still, we stayed in motels. We stayed in hotels, right? We stayed in some nice places. We stayed in some shitty places, but I was like, it was still a task to kind of like sync up with all these other guys and make it to Sturgis, right? Like it was, it was not exactly an easy motorcycle trip just because we decided not to camp while we were doing it. Right, man cheap hotels can be an experience on their own oh yeah i've spent some nights in hotels where i'm like man i wish i was in a tent (laughs) (laughs) this is not ideal yeah Yeah. but it's you know especially down in the states like there's some crazy little places you can stop at man like but you meet some characters one of my favorite things is just like finding a small small town with a divey little motel that's got a pub like down the street or sometimes attached and you go in and just like the people you meet are wild the stories (laughs) you hear it's pretty cool i think that's what's nice about reading these two books back to back is you definitely see like let's just call them like purist per sig right and the motorcycle trip that he's on you get the comparison to the sutherlands whether or not that's completely fair to who they actually were right but riding the bmw and kind of wanting to well they did mention that i don't remember sylvia was kind of pissed off with the way he changed the characters a bit. Yeah, yeah, for so sure. So there's some, you know, artistic creativity in there. You know, and they're kind of like, they want to eat in restaurants and like they don't necessarily want to get up first thing in the morning. They're kind of maybe more on a vacation than they are a motorcycle trip, right? And then you kind of got Mark Richardson and he's really sort of like blending the two together, right? Like there's moments where he's kind of sleeping rough and he's like, oh, good, I have a high-speed internet connection, right? So I can plug in the laptop. And you're like, oh, okay, Mark Richardson, right? Yeah, he's like, got his G, like drops his GPS and breaks <laughs> it at one point. And he's like, how am I ever going to find this waypoint? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I, I, I kind of like that. You sort of see like the, at least the attempt to kind of do sort of both styles of motorcycle riding in one, right? And I don't think there really is like a, you have to do it this way or you have to stick it that way. Like, you know, if it makes sense to stay in a motel, stay in the motel. If it makes sense to go camping, you camp, right? So, yeah, it's like it's your journey. Yeah, for like, sure. That was kind of the the thing I got caught up on with the idea of being a Persig's pilgrim, pilgrim is like it's uh, to me, motorcycles has always been a big part of it is that it's a solo adventure. I've done a couple like not group rides, but with like one or two buddies. But for the most part, I prefer just me out on the road. Like, man, I, I doubled up with a girlfriend to Canmore the other day. And I was like, I don't really like doing this, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like we got there. And when we got there, there's some beautiful roads around Canmore. It's fun. But it's for me, it's always been the solo adventure and it being my own adventure, you know, just doing what I want for sure. Some nights I'll get that divey little motel or some nights I'm in a camp. I find fulfillment in both. But it's I like it being mine and mine authentically, you know, whereas the idea of following somebody else's path, it it throws me off a little bit, especially when he's like, oh, I'm like the timeline. Like, it's yeah. like, oh, I'm, I'm behind in time or something, you know, and because he wants to be in San Francisco for his 42nd birthday. right? Yeah. But he's like, but relating it to their trip, like, oh, they're getting started at six in the morning and I, yeah. you know, I'm having breakfast at 730. And it's, it kind of feels weird, like. 
He's got like their schedule. He's got like the ZMM schedule in front of him. He's like, oh, I, it's time to it's time to get the tab and leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, he it does it does still end up being his own authentic experience. Some of the people he meets along the way, uh, the I can't remember his name, the Russian guy, oh, the, the family motel. that owned the motel, yeah. and then the girl that he meets there as well, and some of the just unique characters. He does manage to have his own authentic experience. So like the idea of it at first, I was like, Ugh. like, is this going to be like reading ZMM again? Just without the interesting diversity of it being written by someone that's actually crazy. You know, <laughs> like I was pleasantly surprised that he still tells his own story, has his own authentic experiences and somehow still finds the time to give you a ton of information about Persig. Like I said, like I, it's, if you're going to read one, it's worth reading the other. I think so. I like it too because you can still sort of read, even if you're not really too interested in Persig and sort of the characters of ZMM, like you can still read Mark Richardson's Zeta Now. I think you could probably read it without having read ZMM. I think that'll give you like, and then if you do decide to read ZMM, that'll give you like a really interesting sort of like perspective, I think, on, on Persig's work. But like, I know there's like this moment where he's talking about being a journalist somewhere in Africa for like, this foundation called care and they have like this old president like jimmy carter coming and they're like preparing this like area and it's like has the only flushing toilet or whatever so it was like this whole big thing to get the president to come here instead of like this other place right and then like when it comes time like the president wants to use the facilities ex-president wants to use the facilities before he gets on this plane it's like there's just like another journalist that's like in there already and like the president ends up taking a leak behind a tree like yeah they'd like carefully prepared the toilet paper (laughs) and like he had he had like the brochure or like the pamphlet of his organization in there yeah so that the president would see it and stuff and then just someone else is there so the president just pisses on a tree like (laughs) well and in that story there's a moment where he prepares a line i can't remember what it is but he knows that there's reporters around that's right and he like kind of places himself in a spot where it looks like he's just looking at a creek and then they're like oh who's this guy and they go over and ask him and he's got this line and he just nails it the first time soundbite yeah and then he goes to the stand by the next group of reporters and wait for someone to come by and use the same line you know like yeah, he does. He does. I actually totally forgot about that story until you brought it up. Yeah, it felt, just... felt like it was from like when you first started mentioning. It, I was like, "That's not this book." And then I'm like, "Oh shit, it is." Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it is pretty diverse, actually. I think with Zena now, it's like it could probably like maybe not so much a broad audience, but I think you know, like a 15 year old kid could probably pick up that book and sort of appreciate it, right? Like it's it's not gonna be dense like ZMM. Like definitely, like Mark Richardson is definitely not a philosopher sort of like maybe writes and thinks about things a little philosophically from time to time right but it's not it's not sort of like the heavy intellectual academic sort of philosophical motorcycle trip that zmm is like where that book like i think and i'm gonna say this probably about every book that i read like i think everyone should read this book but i don't think that zmm is accessible to everyone right like i don't think and nothing against, like, my girlfriend or even my sister, right? Like, I don't think that ZMM is for them. Like, I don't think that they're going to get as much out of it as, say, you and I or someone who rides a motorcycle, right? I think that's sort of not necessarily a prerequisite, but I think it helps if you have ridden a motorcycle. Absolutely. It would, I mean, likewise, it would also help if you have some interest in philosophy. Yeah. You know, like, when I first dove into this, I was heavy into motorcycles and 
very little into philosophy. You know, I wasn't that deep of a thinker the first time I read it. And I think that played a big part of like why I didn't quite click with it at first, you know, like, and he even says in the start of the book, like this book doesn't have much to do with Zen and it's also not very factual on motorcycles, (laughs) (laughs) which is funny because it's actually quite factual from everything I read. Like he's pretty like to the point about his maintenance. You could tell he's a very meticulous man. And like he, gets upset about when somebody in a shop doesn't care for their work yeah. you know like you you have to care for working on the machine to produce you know a quality piece of craftsmanship because i think there's this moment where Percy and chris i can't remember if the sutherlands are still with them at this point or not but they're kind of coming up to like these motel cabins and Persig right away notices like how well built they are they're not necessarily the nicest or the fanciest, but you can tell just by the carpentry and that the way that these little cabins are constructed that they were well built. And I think Richardson finds those same like motel cabins. I don't know where they were. I think it might have been Montana. I might be getting that the location wrong. But like and then even Richardson's like, Yeah, like they were obviously well built because they're still here and they're still standing and it's, you know, thirty some odd years later, right? It's stuff like that that he notices. Right. Like the quality in even something like carpentry, right, that where some people would just be like, oh, great, like you have a room. Perfect. And not necessarily notice that the door frame is just meticulously crafted. Right. Well, and especially with him making the point that it's not necessarily nice. It's just well built. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people there's a lot of nice houses out there that are a pile of hot garbage, you know, like sure. Like they're they're a. You know, made to last maybe eight years or something, and yeah. then they're falling apart. You know, we see it a lot of with a lot of new cars too, right? Built to last the warranty, and that's it. Sure. You know, and I think he would kind of see it a lot with these factory built cars that are a lot of robotics. Like, I think he would feel that we've lost the art of human care for the job. You know, which of course, with having a human doing the job comes with the potential for fuck ups. You know, like people that don't care, but there really is something like built with love and built with passion for the job. It's just a totally different, totally different uh, creation. I mean, you, you get consistency with the robotics, but you kind of lose the individualism. Aside from there is some companies like Aston Martin built the 177 where it's 77 slightly different, like one-off versions of this car that are all hand built. And you see it, you know, when you see the car, not that I've seen one in person, obviously there's 77 <laughs> of them, but it, it's, it's just, there's something about what Persig's saying with this, this handcrafted quality of, of a person that really cares for their job. So there's this, uh, this sort of funny family story is my grandfather and my mom's side, my, actually my grandparents on my mom's side, they had this acreage outside of Rimby and they had this old blue Chevrolet, like something out of like the. 60s or 70s or something I, I can't remember when this truck was built this blue farm truck and something in the clutch fucked up right it had a pedal clutch and so my grandfather like somehow figured out how to use like two levers from like a tractor and so it essentially became like this really awful suicide clutch because you needed one to actually like operate the clutch and then the other one had to like shift the gear so you needed both hands to make a shift so, like, you had to take your hands off the steering wheel, right? Like, normally, you just, oh, yeah, like, yeah. you hold on with one hand, and you make the shift, right? Because the clutch is with the foot, right? But there's something about it that I remember, like, hearing about, like, my uncle and my grandfather talk about. It. It's like, yeah, like, it wasn't 
It wasn't like necessarily aesthetically pleasing, but it, it worked and it worked for a long time just because of like the craftsmanship that my grandfather did. Like he just figured it out, right? For sure. I love moments like that. Like you see, there's no greater ingenuity than on the side of a trail when a motorcycle's <laughs> broken down, you know? Oh yeah. When you can't get it out of the bush and you're on too narrow of a trail to get a truck. Like I've seen some amazing things riding dirt bikes, you know, somebody's bike breaks down and it's like everybody puts their heads together and something would come up. We've talked about this theme before, you know, overcoming problems that you probably couldn't overcome if it was sitting in your garage. Yeah. You'd just put a new part on. Yeah. But like sure. when you're out there and you have to, you, you find a way Yeah, and it's, it's pretty cool what people come up with, you know, and even just like, there's a huge history of it in the motorcycle world, like the chopper world, the modifications that came on the, out of these bikes, just from people wanting to do different things with them back when they were a pretty generic platform. And someone's like, I want to use it for this, you know, whichever, you know, if it's a show style, like a chopper, or if it's a long ride bike, if it's an off-road bike, just all of these developments that have come just from the desire to change it and the craftsmanship to do so. You know, and you asked me earlier, like, what do you think Persig would think of as like fuel injected bikes? I think he would still get a lot of sort of enjoyment from doing these trips because there still is a lot of opportunities for thinking about problems, not necessarily being prepared for those problems, right? But at least, you know, there's as much as like it's a pain in the ass to run into something on the side of the road. I think it's it's definitely like an intellectual activity at that point where you're like, okay, we gotta we gotta figure this out, right? And so I think I think that there's still a lot that you can sort of get out of riding a motorcycle and you don't necessarily have to know how to adjust the valves or fix a circuit because I still think that there's still a lot of opportunity for sort of like answering these sort of problems that you encounter on the side of the road, on the trail, wherever you might be, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you want to give this a rating? <sighs> okay, we're going to do, how do you want, do we want to do ZMM and then ZNL, like two separate ratings, or do you want to like do them together? Like, what are you thinking? Is this like the main tank and the reserve tank, or what are you, what are you thinking here? <laughs> I like that. I personally kind of want to rate them as a package deal. So, yeah, I think that's good, because we're kind of talking about them as a package deal. I think, you know. Yeah. And I think like Zen and Now, you could read on its own, but I don't, it's, you know, it without ZMM, it's it's not the same. You For know? sure. Yeah. Whereas ZMM, you could read on its own. Yeah. Um, and you can never know about Mark Richardson and still be. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think they're better together, but Zen and Now, you know, without having read ZMM, you don't, you don't understand who it is he's chasing. That's true. Yeah. I think you're right. So what are you thinking here? I'm going to give these books sort of like, this is like engineered 94 octane. Like this is, you know how you can like go just to the gas pump and get like your 94 and your 91 and your 87 and your 80, 89, all those, right? This is kind of like, you can get it, but you like, you got to talk to a guy, like you got to kind of special order, right? It's still going to be the same quality, right? as the stuff you're going to get out of the pump, but there's just something a little bit different about having to like take an extra couple of steps to get this drum of fuel, if you know what I mean. You got to do the work, but if you do the work, it's race gas. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to take kind of a long way to get there. So when I was in, I don't know, high school, I think, I had a friend, and I can't remember if it's a mutual friend of ours, 
who would go to house parties and take all of the labels off the soup cans. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not an entirely malicious thing to do because... It you can't identify your soups now, but you still have the soups. They didn't steal anything. You just now have no idea what soups you have. So if you wanted soup, let's say you really want tomato soup that day. You're not gonna open a can, find that it's not tomato soup, and then throw it out and, and open another can, right? You're not gonna do that. You're gonna have whatever soup you get when you open it. If you really want tomato soup and you open it and get the tomato soup, you're going to feel pretty damn good. That's you Yeah, know? absolutely. I think this book is kind of one of those soup cans. <laughs> like, you could try it a few times, or multiple people might have different experiences, but one of the days, and for one of the people, it's your tomato soup. You know, it's your 94. And then there's other days you really want tomato, you're going to open this, and it's like chicken noodle or something, and it's just still good as a soup but it's just not at all what you're looking for that's right you know you're kind of rolling the dice in a way sometimes on multiple reads and sometimes just for each person like it's hard to say who specifically it's for because like i said when i first read it i didn't know anything about philosophy some of these questions were things that i couldn't even fathom yeah some of these philosophers i've read that he's like talking about and some of them like i i still don't know what this guy's gist is because i haven't read this particular philosopher's philosophy for sure yeah and it's like i can't give it a solid rating because it really depends on the time of your life and what you're looking for but if it's the right time if it's the the right point and it's and you're looking for this and you find it it's a 94 man it's so good yeah it's so good if this is really what you're looking for and you can't even say for which people because like i said i read it a long time ago it wasn't my tomato soup you know, I was kind of like, it I wasn't, like the it wasn't what I was man. looking for. You know, it was just a book on a shelf. And I think you had recommended it to me and I gave it a try. And I knew you would recommend it highly. And I remember kind of being like, I, like, I want to really like it. You know, yeah. you were a cool motorcycle guy. I was trying to be a cool motorcycle guy. And I was like, there's got to be some motorcycle thing in this book that I'm going to find. It's going to make me a cooler motorcycle guy. I wasn't in the space to to get it yet. And then down the road when I read it again, I was like, man, this there's so much to this book. And I was just looking at it with the wrong lens. You know, it just wasn't what I was looking for at the time. So it's hard to say. Like, I don't want to say this is absolutely a 94 and people go read it. And like, I think it was my brother said, this is the worst book he's ever read. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. ZMM. Yeah. Wow. So, but again, I wouldn't have given it a high rating the first time I read it, I would have been like, what is this? Yeah. Like, and then I read Zen and now and got a better understanding of the character and years down the road, I read it again. And then I was like, I kind of had the life experience and the open mindedness to really get into it. Cause I was looking for something else. You know, I was looking in the wrong soup can. I was looking for something motorcycle and it's so much more than that. And if, if you're looking down too narrow of a hallway, you're just not going to get the big picture of this book. So at the right time, if you got the open mind to really consume everything in here, it's it's ama- it's an amazing read. Yeah, and like it's very possible that your brother might have a different reaction if he decides to read it a second time. And I know just I've got a family member, and they read Zen and, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and they're like, yeah, right? Like kind of came 
maybe not so much from that era, but maybe, you know, a decade or two, a little past it, right? But definitely felt the vibe, right? That's sort of like, you know, anti-technology, maybe a little bit, right? Definitely this family member probably resonated with John Sutherland a little bit more because like this family member is a drummer and like John Sutherland's like a drummer, right? In the book. And then like really enjoyed the book. And then I remember this same family member, some time passed, they read ZMM again and they were just kind of like, meh. Like all of that sort of spark that they got out of the first reading, it just wasn't there again. They didn't get the same things out of it. And he was kind of like, I don't really know if I really like this book anymore. Yeah, I did it one time, right? And I think for me, like, I think it was sort of always, I definitely had like the what is this sort of reaction the first time I read it. And you're just kind of reading it just to read it, right? Because you're just like, I don't know where this is going. I don't yeah. know. Like it's just, this is just like a wild sort of like, insane invention that you're taking with the schizophrenic that happens to practice motorcycle maintenance and philosophy right second reading i was definitely more cynical right i probably would have said it's an 87 yeah. you know a leaded 87 fuel and then reading it again i'm like you know what like there's a lot that i can sort of be humbled about in my own thinking and i think it's definitely sort of uh the fuel has sort of been enriched right and I'm like, yeah, like I got two copies now. And I'm like, told my girlfriend, I'm like, this is the third time I've read this book. Like I'm, I'm not done with it. Like I'll, I'll re- definitely be reading this again sometime, maybe not in the, in the near future, but I'll definitely be reading per se. And like I said, there's a common theme here of people not finishing it the first time. So if you get ZM, ZMM and you, it just doesn't quite resonate with you. Don't give it away. Don't get rid of it. Put it on the shelf. Come back to it. Maybe it's five years from now. Just come back to it. It's one of those ones that's worth holding on to. And uh, like I said, I did it myself, came back to it again later. And I was like, oh, you know, like I, I can get this now. You know, it it's not even age. It's, you know, life experiences and how open-minded you are. Like for me, there was a different timeline than a lot of people. I know people that are much younger than me that could probably really grasp this already. And that's the package deal because like I really grabbed it a lot more when I knew more about Persig. I think that was a big a big downside of my first experience with it is without knowing who Persig is and you're just reading it as like some fictional character, you're like, well, this doesn't, I don't really understand what's happening here. Yeah. It's just some, and then you realize like how close this is to a confession, how close this is to an autobiography and what the mind is like behind it. I think, uh, I can't remember if it was Richardson, it might've been somebody else, another sort of critic of the book uh, was saying like, you know, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, like, it seems that Persig had to write it. Like, he kind of felt compelled, almost, like, did it sort of, like, compulsively almost at times, right? Whereas Lila, the sort of sequel to the Zen and the Art, which I haven't read, but it almost felt like he wanted to write that book. It wasn't something that he had to do or felt compelled to do. So just knowing that, and I think sort of helps with what is going on here, right? Like having something in your mind, like I just need to write this out. I just need to get this out of my brain, right? And I think understanding Persig, you're you're absolutely right. And I and I agree with you hundred percent. Like it uh Zen and Now really does help service that book, right? It's you know, it's like doing a synthetic oil change. You know, it's like it's you're you're getting the maintenance done and you're doing it right, but just like that extra aspect that you're putting synthetic motor oil into the crankcase, I think that's sort of what Mark Richardson is doing. And I think, you know, 
his writing style, the sort of form of the book, right? How it's sort of structured and, you know, sort of like weird moments where he's talking about like Jimmy Carter and like being an African, stuff like that. Like he covers a, a lot of ground and I'm very appreciative of sort of uh, what sort of he sort of shares like with Percy and his family, right? Because I think, you know, there's, keep in mind, like there's, there's another brother that doesn't even really get mentioned, right? There's like a, I believe right. he's older. I think his name's Ted, right? So it's, it's a good read. Yeah. And it's worth keeping in mind that there's a lot about Persig's life and about Chris's life and even Mark's that we really don't dive into here. Like there's so much more depth to this than we've covered. And there's a few things that I've intentionally avoided that are big ones, you know, that really change your understanding of these characters and, and where things go from here, you know, and how it changes, uh, Persig's mindset in the second book in Lila, you know, so this, I wouldn't consider a complete overview, you know, like (laughs) by no stretch does like, you know, a a podcast episode, like, you know, you could probably take like a university course just on ZMM alone. Well, I mean, there, there, it's like a whole new branch of philosophy. Now the metaphysics of quality all came from, Robert Persig. There's you like know? people that have done PhDs on like Persig's philosophy, right? So it's For like, sure. man, it's like that seed crystal, right? That phrase that he used, the seed crystal, like that was, that was like a philosophical seed crystal. Now we've got, you know, new sort of areas of knowledge, which is like quite astounding when you think of like what he's sort of accomplished for the field of philosophy, right? For sure. I mean, he could have just been a dude in a mental institution. That's right. And you just know? never would have, you know, branched out. This is the last episode of this of our first season and i don't know like i'd like just to just to kind of take a couple moments and sort of like reflect on all all of the books that we read because we've kind of been on like kind of a journey here going through all these authors and i think it took more work than i thought it would to kind of get through these books and just just sort of schedule having a sit down and recording a podcast but i think the theme and sort of the reading list. And we've already kind of talked about some of the highs and some of the lows. We didn't exactly pick home runs every book, but this has kind of been like a very, you know, enlightening sort of uh, season, right? Yeah. And I don't think we've had any complete bombs. Like Ted Simon, the second book, I don't think was quite necessary. Right? Yeah, for sure. But like, I don't really regret reading it, but it wasn't as fulfilling as I wanted it to be. Yeah, right. The first one I loved reading, and I think I was kind of let down by the second, but still glad I read it, you know? Same with like a short history of the motorcycle, because it's a very different vibe than anything else we would have read, right? Yeah, it's not really like a storybook. No. It was like a flip through picture, like almost <laughs> closer to a textbook. Almost, you know? yeah. Yeah, like but, a motorcycle textbook. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we started off that way, though. I think the structure worked out really well. I'm looking forward to doing another season. Yeah, me too. We haven't settled on a topic yet. We've got some ideas. I think we've got some good ideas, and I don't really want to share what those ideas are because I kind of sure. I kind of want to let those germinate. There's some other books that I want to go read that aren't going to necessarily be podcast worthy, so I got to get some other reading out of the way, and then I absolutely want to want to do another season of the Enlightened Dirtbags. But I think. If we sort of stick with sort of the ideas that we have, there's going to be a very different sort of feel in the second season. I will say that. Yeah, it'll be nice, you know, that uh, 
we can cover some more bases. So it's not always, it doesn't always feel the same. You know, if, if one season doesn't resonate with you, you know, another season might really work, you know, so we can kind of touch on topics for everyone. And it's, I think it's going to be exciting to help us diversify what we've read and just, and just expand the knowledge a little bit more, get some new experiences. How are people getting a hold of you these days? How do you want people to get a hold of you these days? Uh, I am enlightened underscore dirtbag on Instagram. That's probably the best way to go. It's where I post my random motorcycle adventures. It's where I post my cabin life and will be posting a lot about the podcast. It's kind of centered around that, but we just haven't got there yet. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there will be a lot on there. I know a lot of people that have an idea that we're doing this have been asking, when's it coming out? Apologies for the delay, but we have had uh, a couple of different structures for how we wanted to release it, and uh, Spotify just doesn't really work out that way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the whole season will be coming out at once. But yeah, that's about that's about it for me. Instagram is uh, the best way to go. Send me your book ideas. Send me your motorcycle trip pictures. You know, let me know what you thought about the podcast. Even if you thought it was garbage, tell me, and I can be like, hey, that person listened. <laughs> The best place to reach me would probably be Instagram, too. Just at Jonah Condro, all lowercase, all one word. I'm kind of curious to know what you thought of the motorcycle theme. And if you didn't ride a motorcycle, if you listened, kind of what you thought of sort of our take on the motorcycle books. If you've read any of these books, kind of what you th- what your thought is. Maybe, you know, I'm curious to know, did we change your thinking or sort of did we sort of like drum up some new questions? Just fire us an Instagram message, right? And then uh, that'll kind of help us sort of decide what we're going to do for the second season. And maybe you've got some awesome suggestions or some awesome book ideas that we could sort of like roll into a theme for the next season. We want to hear about all that. Let us know what you're reading. Yeah. And if you're interested in any of the books we've read, uh, as we've mentioned before, we'd certainly be uh, interested in doing a trade, even if it doesn't uh, fit our next theme. Like I know I'm always happy. Some of these books I've got multiple copies of. I'm always happy to trade books and get get new ones and just read what has really sparked someone's imagination. You know, as I I mentioned, uh, Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf previously, I got that book from a friend of mine that I find really interesting. You know, he's a really unique guy and a a really intelligent guy. And when he recommended that book to me, he was like, this is a really profound book. And I really loved diving into it. And I was like, "Ah, now I'm excited to see what it was about the book that did that for him. So if you've got something that you thought was great, even if you're not looking to uh, put it on another season of this, just let us know in the trade and, and uh, pass some ideas around.